0: John Copenhagen and Al Warren. Good on 106.5 FM Los Angeles. 102.3 FM Riverside. And 1050
1: AM Palm Springs. Oh, welcome back into the house of Mystery. Last show of twenty twenty three and wow. so Mr. David Rose Martino's here to <laughs> throw the last pitch. This, this throw the last flower out. Yeah. and black. Rose. Now that you brought the rose back. Yeah, yeah, Rosie, Rosy. rosy. <laughs> rockin' Rosie. I feel like yeah. Rudolph the red Reindeer. I you know, I got this big zit coming on the end of my nose. There, <laughs> I could feel it, and it's like, My uh-huh. God, I'm sixty one, who gets pimples anymore? You know, Apple does. Yeah. And pop it I, on air. Well, no, it's not it's not come that way. You can just feel it, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, it's just it's gonna it's gonna be a big one, so I'm gonna be Rudolph. <laughs> you see I very I, festive. I, uh, very. And uh, speaking of, it, you see in Portland, Oregon, you see, they got the, uh, the robocops, eh? They do? Yeah, they got robots. Oh. They got five robots. Oh. And they cruise around downtown. <laughs> they look like R2D 2 kind of. Okay. That, right? And they scroll around, you know, And they're actually <laughs> filming and watching and listening to everything around them. Oh, so they, that sounds so, like a dystopia. Yeah, oh. so they're looking for crime and violence and all that stuff like that. But the You know the good side is they give you um directions, so you can oh. approach one when it's kind of winging along, you can say, "Excuse me it'll stop and say, "Yes, ma'am, and then you kind of go, "Well, where can I find the starbucks and then they'll send it send you to starbucks
0: that's convenient, and,
1: yeah, and if you're getting you know attacked and beaten as you always do when you're yeah. downtown, yeah you it it will help oh yeah it'll come along and Squirt on you and call the police (laughs) (laughs) i thought it knew martial arts yeah see so it's the beginning of cyber cyber cop you know that yeah what was that uh robocop yeah Yeah, those series. won't be long (laughs) it won't be long you know perfect yeah i think the test zone for that i think they were testing that in a town up in Canada and North Canada called Prince George because <laughs> <laughs> so, there's so many criminals up there, right? And, mm. and people, and it's really really terrible. Um, so, And speaking of Prince George, <laughs> we've got their star writer. He's here. He's here now, and he's here to talk about his book coming out here. It's called It Came From the Trees and Other Violent Aberrations. So that kind of sounds in line. So, Joel McKay, mm. um, we're glad you're here.
2: Well, thanks for having me. It's good to be back in in the deepest, darkest Prince George, the uh, alleged crime capital of North
1: America. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a, you know, I, that's, that. now this, I, I'm just saying, this is what I heard. I don't know if it's true, but, you know, they test all of them those RoboCops up in Prince George, right?
2: Well, you know, when you're talking about those RoboCops, my first question is, so you run into one of these, like, what if you said, hey, like, where can I score some smack, <laughs> some like, are they? Do they arrest you? Do they arrest you on the spot, or do they do they point you to the direction of the latest dealer? Do you get a lecture? Like I'm curious as to what the they program functionality is if you and you know ask it that question.
1: Well, you see, see, for listeners, you know, um, most are American and they're going to go, what you see, see in Prince George, there's no criminal drug use, so you can use heroin, pot, everything you want. So this is why he's asking where he scored. This would be <laughs> not, not, it's just so you know, it's not illegal there. So. I don't,
2: I don't no. know that that's a Prince George thing. I think that's just a, I'm a, I know, I'm a you know, I'm a.
1: B.C. Canadian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I know, I was just yeah. picking on you. It's general
2: <laughs> curiosity, right?
1: Yeah, it's like, why not? Well, actually, you know, the thing is, I don't know. I don't know enough about them, but um, the reporters that would approach them, they would respond politely and help them out whatever they wanted. So I don't know what they do if you need to get some drugs <laughs> um, or if you're getting attacked. I don't know what they can really do. I think they film and report it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine they are trained in the proper uh, application of use of force in a, in that kind of situation, right? Like
1: not Not yet. Not yet, right? Not yet. But these are the first. Yeah, this is the first rollout, right? So it's like anything. It starts there, and then it turns into something more serious. Yeah, maybe. Well, Which would you want, a a real human cop or a robot cop?
2: I I guess I'm old school, a real human being.
1: (laughs) You are so Canadian. You're too nice.
2: (laughs) You know, like, yeah. Like, I don't know. I don't trust the robot. Like, I don't. Like, like, yeah. That that doesn't – I also think it's ironic that it's Portland. Right. Like, Why? Well, wasn't Why? Portland that one of the lead cities in the defund the police movement?
1: Yeah, they, but they've got a lot of issues.
2: Okay. Like, are we talking San Francisco level trouble or?
1: For the size of the city, they're way above what they should be. Okay. You know, like like they outrank Seattle, which is over double the size, and it shouldn't be, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, that's awful. Portland's a beautiful city.
1: Yeah, it's too bad.
2: When It yeah. was when I was there a decade or more ago.
1: Yeah. Well, you see, that's because you left, and look what happened.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's exactly right, right?
1: You know, they needed the charming Joel to be down there.
2: <laughs> Some charming Canadian? That's actually probably yeah. the problem. There's probably too many charming Canadians in Portland, and that's what led to the issues.
1: Yeah, <laughs> usually is. Yes. They're usually the troublemakers. <laughs> and then, 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 then they have the gall to say sorry after they caused the trouble.
2: Yeah, I know. Well, you got to be polite.
1: <laughs> polite. Right. <Great. laughs>
2: Right? Like if you're gonna screw things up for people, will just be like, eh, you know, I own it. Sorry about that. Sorry not screw.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Carry on. Sorry. Oh okay, so so listen, so why is a, a sweet, adorable Canadian writing this horror stuff stuff? Like what's going on?
2: I don't think we are sweet or adorable. I think that's one of the greatest myths about Canadians that was ever perpetrated and I'm not sure who came up with that but it's like this whitewashing of of Canada like <laughs> for yeah we're not sweet or adorable or particularly kind in my experience or much different than anybody else so what's my deal uh I like writing monster stories always like writing monster stories so I write monster stories I don't know that citizenship has uh, a lot to do with it but perhaps living in middle Canada because I'm not quite in the north um also has something to do with it
1: what? Because you're isolated.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think you know, like I live in an, in an area that's the size of so northern BC is the size of France, and it's got three hundred thirty thousand people in it, right? So, it's uh, there's lots of towns, but they're all small, and in a lot of wilderness, and, and a lot of territory that is you know not settled. And so, um, if you got imagination you like monster stories, a pretty cool place to be coming up with monster stories. I've got a lot of lot of ground to cover.
1: And so it's not settled, so you guys like still ride the horse and buggy and all that. And...
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean it's uh, no no electricity, no power. I'm I'm right now I'm on a, a bicycle pumping the tires just so I can have enough power to do this interview before I, I go back to follow <laughs> to out the water so that I can, you know, have an ice bath later, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah. Most antlers get you the one television station.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Moose antlers covered in tinfoil, and and I get access to the CBC, which is you know award-winning entertainment.
0: <laughs> wow,
1: that's nice. Uh, so for my CBC friends, that's just a joke, okay? That's not real. <laughs> so listen, yeah. What 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 is it about you that make? Because this is the last time we had you on. You you had written a horror, the wolf. Wolf, of the door, wolf yeah. at the door. Wolf at the door. Right? Yeah. So what's going on with you? Like, where do, where do these ideas come from? Is it because you are in a, where you live, or is it because of the people you're around, or is it just you're insane? Like, what, what, hap- what happens?
2: I think it's the latter, to be honest. Um, yeah. It's got nothing to do with, with where I live or the people <laughs> I'm around. Like, I got a pretty good life. I got nothing to complain about. But um, I just have always loved horror stories, mom.
0: and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Monster stories, like monster, monster movies, right? Um, and I like telling those stories. I find that horror is an interesting gateway to you know uh explore feelings of empathy and dread and and terror of course and um it's what i like to read so i think you know if you're a creator of any type not claiming to be a good one but um you tend to want to create that which you like um or that which you know and so for me yeah it's horror i I love fantasy too and i i was raised on, you know, traditional high fantasy and those stories and occasionally do a bit of that. But I found at this point in my life, yeah, I like writing, I like writing scary stories. And um, what is true, though, I suppose, to the geography is that my stories are largely based in northern BC. So there is a an, an element of place that's attached to these that that I draw on that I think gives it a unique um, aspect. Right. The same way that you see New England often featured in. In horror, but I think Northern British Columbia or British Columbia generally is a, a far better setting in some ways for, for that genre.
1: So it's a horrific place.
2: <laughs> I think that there's some, there's some meeting point between the ruggedness and the diversity of the geography and climate, even like even in the Okanagan or the North, the coast that makes for really compelling places. Um, And then, you know, you throw in compelling characters and then something paranormal or supernatural um, and you've got something quite unique. I mean, look, it's British Columbia. What's its tourism brand? Supernatural British Columbia. There is a long history in this province of leaning into sort of the spiritual or supernatural elements of of storytelling um, that I don't think I'm the first in any stretch to be in, in that place. Certainly not. The first in the north so i'm adding to what i think is a a nascent tradition of bonkers storytelling coming out of british columbia
1: no so uh, how how important is the setting then is the setting up there with a the character for you do you write? yeah like it is
2: yeah for me it is yeah i'm a i'm a big believer in the value of place and and i'm just passionate about british columbia i always have been i i'm yeah, I'm Canadian, but I identify as a British Columbian first. Um, if that makes any sense, I suppose the same way that a Texan would identify as a Texan before an American in, in some cases. And so place for me and, and showcasing that place, exploring that place, I think it actually helps to build place. Um, because I, I think for readers, like people really don't know Canada, like Canada's geography, Canada as a place or as a setting, whether it's in, in films and books, on radio, um, it's often masked. I mean, look at Vancouver. Like, Vancouver's, the, what, the number three city in North America for filming. and But how many of the movies that are filmed there, or TV shows, are actually set there? It's, it's always positioned as somewhere else, small-town America, somewhere else, but it's actually filmed in Vancouver. And it bugs me. As a British Columbia, as a, as a Canadian, I want to see more stories set in this place about people from this place and, and issues that are unique to this place. Why does it always have to be, you know, the eastern seaboard in the United States or California? And there's nothing wrong with those places. I love those stories, too. But if we want a true diversity of, of stories out there and narratives, then, you know, we need to build place. And, and so, yeah, for me, yeah, place setting pretty important.
1: I'll we'll give you some phone numbers of f- some filmmakers, and you can scream at them.
2: Yeah, I can scream at them, and they can promptly hang up the phone and never never uh, option any of my books, right? <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> what do you think people get wrong about Canada?
2: Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think, it, so I've got a lot of family in the States, uh, including my parents. Love the U.S., love spending time down there. I think people get a lot wrong about the U.S., too. I think you know the the stereotypes. There's some. There's obviously some truths there, but also like Canadians, you know, aren't always the nicest people that the rest of the world thinks. Like we've got we've got our own issues in, in this country. We've had our own issues for for over a hundred years. We seem to have convinced everybody, including ourselves, that our history is boring uh, and that it's not bloody. And that actual in actual fact, if you look at it, it's, it's anything but bore, boring. And it is very bloody. And I think people look at Canada from the outside and they see this massive geography and, and just assume it's a wasteland. Well, if you've been up to the territories, it's not a wasteland. It, it's it's pretty darn green for a, a solid chunk of the year. And in, in the part of the province that I live in, everybody, you know, and I've talked to people like, oh, do you live in, you know, Ice huts and igloos up there, and I'm like, well, no, <laughs> like it looks like, like it, like honestly, like it's you know, I've got the Rocky Mountains an east, uh, an hour east from here, and in in Prince George, smaller mountains and forests. Like in a lot of ways, it looks like Middle America, right? And and it's not winter all the time. We have hot summers, so there's things like that that I just think there's a lot of assumptions of Canada being empty and this snowy wasteland, and I don't think they're true. That at least has never been my experience, and I don't think we do a good job of telling our own stories.
1: Well, that's good. You <laughs> don't want pe- more people to come, do you?
2: Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? <laughs> do we, and and i struggled with that because, like, I mean, Prince George is obviously a lot smaller than Kelowna,
1: um,
2: it, but it's a good size, and, like, I love living here. I don't plan on ever leaving, and, um, you know, in some ways it would be nice if it got bigger and we had more people here um, because you get more services and, and stuff like that, but... Also, like, I don't want it to get massive um, because then you lose um, or you risk losing that feeling of it still being a, you know, a, a small town in, in, a, in a mid-sized city, which it has. And that was one of the reasons why I left Vancouver. I love Vancouver, born and raised there, great place. But, you know, the Vancouver that exists today is not the Vancouver that I grew up in. And um, the parts that are gone are the parts that I missed that I found living in the interior again. Um, so yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird balance. And of course, my day job is trying to get this place to grow and develop. Um, so <laughs> there's a constant struggle in, in that too.
1: I also noticed in this that you, you talk about like this is tree planters on the run from parasitic insects. So that's an interesting premise right there. Uh, first of all tree planters, I guess because it's in the area you're in you must have a lot of tree planters and the insects so what is that did the idea of that come to your head first or did you have your characters and then you decided to do that to them
2: uh, the idea came to my head first it really the idea was born out of the mountain pine beetle epidemic um which you know devastated our our forests in the in the interior and and in parts of where you live too for better part of the last 20 years um and you know in some cases gutted the forestry industry and 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 had real impacts on communities and i wanted to i wanted to write a story about that because i'm not sure that the rest of north america or even you know even western canada really understands that we had this issue that ate you know 70 80 percent of our pine forest through insect waves over 20 a 20 year period there was times in the early 2000s when you would fly over the central interior of British Columbia and the forests weren't green, they were red because the trees were dead and and stained by that mountain pine beetle. And it's it was gargantuan. Like, it's hard to even wrap your head around the impact that that had on not just the visual qualities of the place, but work for people, right? I mean, once that beetlewood is gone, like, it takes 60 years to grow a decent-sized tree here and then, you know, mill it into lumber. So we lost a lot of forestry jobs that impacts families, that impacts restaurants and hotels, all those other things. Right. So so that was rolling around in my head for a while because it's very real here in British Columbia and especially in the central interior. And uh, then I got the story. Well, how do you you know, how do you approach that? And I tried a few times and, and nothing came together. And then I got an idea of, you know, a group of tree planters. Um, who stumble upon an insect that has been unearthed in, by logging. And then it in, infests and takes over their body, and there's really no escape from it. And, and it spreads, and it spreads, and it spreads. Um, so, yeah, mountain pine beetle and what we saw here definitely feeds into that story. I think it's a baseline for it. I wouldn't call it commentary on, on forestry. I'm sure people will read into that it's not supposed to opine on forestry one way or another but what it does hearken back to that i do say in the book after the story is an x-files episode from season one of this series uh where it is about loggers and there's a parasitic insect and so that story is drawing two things together one this mountain pine beetle issue and and two uh, it's an ode to that X-Files episode that was filmed in Vancouver and that I love, and it still scares the hell out of me, you know, almost 30 years later. Uh, 30 years later. Yeah, yeah 30 years later. Um, and so I drew that together and was able to write a novelette. So out of it, and that's, that is the title story. It came from the trees. Do
1: you know, I, I used to watch them film x File in Vancouver from my apartment. Oh,
2: yeah, no way. I used to see four. them. Yeah. Yeah, I used to see them filming, too, um, when I was living there all over the place. In fact, um, when they filmed the second movie there, I actually managed to figure out where they were filming um, the first night downtown and crashed the set and uh, was able to meet uh, David Duchovny and get a photo. And he was perfectly polite about it and everything, which was pretty cool for a a long-term fan.
1: Well, you know, there you go. See, I I have some other stories about him, but <laughs> oh, do anyway. oh, tell, oh, Alan. Yes. <laughs> no, that's a that's a whole different life, you know. I don't want to do that on the air. God. So, but I also noticed in the story, you've got like uh, what's this? What's this other stuff? Like a, a physicist that's uh, become a target of a murderous airline. Teenagers trapped in a museum, uh, and you've got. Uh, Holy cow! You got all sorts of stuff going on here, and then you've got a bloody resurrection of an elder god. This is like an acid trip.
2: Yeah, I, I guess if you read it like that, it could be. Um, so, so the book itself is a collection of five stories. It's short. I wanted it to be short um, because I like I like anthologies, but I like short anthologies. So. So I'm trying to appeal to people who are like me out there, who like short stories and short fiction, that don't want to, you know, spend two weeks. Basic readers. Yeah, basic readers. <laughs> <laughs> slack 20, 30 stories necessarily, right? So, um, and the stories are very different. Three of them are horror. One is science fiction thriller. One was sort of grim dark fantasy. The, the common theme between them is um, dread as a theme. Um, but also, you know, they're written by me and they're basically set in BC or, or drawn on BC as as a place to inspire the setting. Um, so yeah, they're all very different. That was kind of the idea too. Like I didn't I didn't want to put together stories that were all very similar. I actually wanted to play with that a bit and, and have stuff that was very different, a sampling of, of different types of, of stories and settings and almost genres to some extent. Um, and then there's commentary in there after every story. That's something I really enjoy as a reader when I get a short little view into into the writer's head or what they were thinking with or thinking about or issues that they were going through. So, yeah, that, you know, the first story is the one about the Beatles. We talked about that second story is a bit of a play on sort of economics and uh, the idea so I had another idea rolling around my head for a long time, which is, like, what what would actually happen if somebody invented teleporter technology? Like, how would that actually play out on the ground? Where would that start? And, like, we've seen a lot about teleporter technology. And, I mean, The Fly is is obviously a good horror example of that, um, which body horror, um, one of the best examples, in fact. And then, of course, Star Trek and, and, you know, what it enables. And I was interested in the economic question, which is, you know, what would happen if that technology's like who loses if that technology suddenly comes into place? Well, the immediate answer is airlines. Um, and then the question is, well, to what extent would the airlines go to shut that down? And so that was the genesis of the story. So you've got two physicists who have invented teleporter technology. They're ready to unveil it to the world. And uh, you've got an airline uh, that's hired somebody to stop them. And how does that how does that play out? And it's based here in in Prince George and and our research out of our university here in in northern B.C. And um, so, again, you're seeing place pop up in that way. But and and economics from from my day job. But thriller in the sense that um, you have, you know, this airline bureaucrat that's hunting down this physicist, which is absurd in and of itself um, to try and shut down this technology. And I do suppose I am taken a poke at the Canadian airlines, um, which I'm not sure that anybody in this country is a particular fan of anyway. So I think I'm on a fairly safe ground there to, to, to poke at them.
1: Right, right. When I, are you thinking about how you write your violence then, or is it more suspense without a lot of violence?
2: In that story, it's suspense without a lot of violence. Um, the body count, without giving away the story, the body count in that story is higher than, than any of the other stories in there. So I thought, um, you know, it kind of fits that way, but I think it fits more on the theme of dread. Um, this sort of physicist who's, you know, just trying to advance research and this impending in, in awareness that, um, yeah, maybe they're not going to see their invention, you know, come to fruition. And the title of the story is a 21st century D.D. Cooper. Um, it's a, it's a, a case I've always been fascinated with. It's out of the Pacific Northwest, so not far away in, in geography, but. Um, if you know the story of D.B. Cooper, then that's going to give you a sense of where this story is going.
1: I wrote one of the books on it.
2: Did you? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. In fact, the, the show on Netflix right now is, is from my book.
2: Oh, that's awesome. I've seen that show. So, Alan, I've got to ask you the question. You wrote a bloody book on the case. So did, did he survive the jump or not?
1: You know, I would say probably not. Yeah, I'd say, to be honest, probably in my opinion, I'd say it's about an 80% chance that he didn't survive. That's my, that's my opinion. That's, and I don't think anybody that's named throughout the book and throughout any of the people I talked to that were was involved, I don't think any of them were the right character. I think it's just all – it's just all – there's t- too many people jump to assumptions by how they feel about someone.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, that's and a that, good point. that
1: carries it through. And that's, that shouldn't be what carries it through. You should look at it with no feeling and just do – evidence-based and kind of go with things and then put it together i mean you can judge their character and how you feel you might go this guy's creepy and he's deceiving and he's got all these things but you know you need to have more evidence that's all
2: i'm with you on that i and i kind of like i love the story and i I think all of us love the romance of this guy actually got away with it but I think it's the romance that feel that fuels the conspiracy on that front, because I kind of arrived at the same conclusion as you, like being from the northwest, the Canadian side of the border, like jumping out of a plane at that time of year into the rain and the wind and then landing in, you know, a cedar hemlock forest, like good luck surviving that. Like, I don't, I don't see like even if you survive the trees, I don't see how you survive on the land. And so to me, I'm, I'm with you. Like, it looks to me like, yeah, 80, 80, 90 percent. He didn't make it. And so then why are we spending all this time on it on a 10 to 20 percent chance that he actually did? And, and the that illusion to me is right. the romance right People are interested in the story and that's fine. that's hey, I, I create stories I think that's that's great right but
1: Yeah, it's the myth. it's the illusion. It, it, everything becomes romantic over time. It doesn't matter what it was you know every, everything that we yep. have so many ideas of, yep. of how far it goes and it just it, it's, it's not quite as it seems you know, especially at the time. Do you ever think about the reader then when you put these stories together, like when they're rolling around in your head and you kind of got things going on? You probably have more than just the stories you wrote for this book. You probably have other ones that come to your mind. Is it your thought of what the reader will think of a story that decides what's going to go in a book or not?
2: Not really. Um, I think when I'm envisioning the reader, it's only to the extent of, how do I get them to turn the page? Um, how am I, how am I engineering that? Because um, I like writing page turners, right? Like it's, it is basic fiction. Like honestly, that is that is what I'm writing. And so I find like because I've, I've seen this over the years where people are like, well, you got to write for audience, you got to write for audience of what your audience wants, and it's like, yeah, okay, I kind of get that, but like that's that's such a nebulous term. Like what the, what the hell does that mean? Like what audience? Who? Like everybody likes different things. Like how do I? it feels to me like you could spend a lifetime trying to understand your audience um, and then write something that's engineered for them but you don't really know them you, you've never met them they especially when you're starting out you don't have an audience yet um, because your particular style as a writer is not actually out there yet so unless you're mimicking somebody else's style and and therefore trying to appeal to their audience, I think you're you're reverse engineering it to your own at your own expense. And so the, the thing that made sense to me, and perhaps just because I'm not smart enough to figure out the audience question, um, and, and I don't want to take anything away from anybody that, that has found success approaching it that way. It's art. Everybody's got their own approach. Um, but for me, I write for me. Uh, I assume I'm the audience. Um, what kind of stories do I want to read? Um, and I'm kind of making an, also an assumption there that there's more than one of me out there or people like me that want to read these kinds of stories. And so that that's what I'm appealing to. And so the only real, back to the point, the only real thing that I'm engineering is like, okay, how do I make it like pacing, right? Pacing, tempo, consistency, um, you know, rationalization. Does that actually make sense? Like if I get into a complex plot, I do go back and look and say, okay, well, like, w- What were other ways to solve this so that there's not some plot hole in there that's obvious to everybody else um, that then takes them out of the story? Because the last thing that I want to happen, whether it's me or a reader who's who's looking at that story, is I want them engrossed. I want them to feel like they're not here anymore. They've been transported somewhere else or they've forgotten where they are. They're so engrossed in the story. That escapism factor for me is big. It was that's how I fell in love with reading and, and storytelling. And so that's what I'm trying to achieve. And, again, I'm not claiming that I've done that um, in any place, but that is what I'm striving for.
1: Right. Well, I I wouldn't necessarily want – I don't think you should really write for people anyway. I think that it leads you somewhere that isn't you you know same as like you get reviews or you know from your last book if you got people that say something oh i like this or they, like, and you kind of go well people like this and so you go that way you know what i mean it's kind yep. of that that direction i i think that's kind of a bad thing personally um,
2: yeah i think you're right um that's kind of what i've come around to on this you know when i was it's funny because when I was a journalist, you write all the time. You're publishing stories every day, and and they're out there. And conceivably, there's you know people reading them. Sometimes a lot of people, depending on on the nature of the story. And you don't give a shit. Oh my! What anybody you know says or thinks about your story, you get you, you develop a, a a pretty thick skin, um, because you just assume no one likes your story, because <laughs> because they're all controversial, right? It's you're not you're not sharing good news. That's kind of not the point. Um, and yet when I got into fiction, like I, man, is there ever a tendency to pay attention to reviews, um, and Goodreads comments? And you're right. Like that can be pretty toxic pretty quick. If for no other reason than to your point, you know, you start, people say, Oh, you know, three or four people say, Oh, I really like what Joel did in this part of the book. And you're like, Oh, okay. Well, I'll lean into that in my next book. Well, that might not be the right decision, right? Now you're, you're almost editorializing your own. Uh, exactly. Creative, yeah. Um, yeah. Process, right?
1: I think it takes you off the focus. This is like I, I get a lot of noise and a lot of comments, and the further I go, the more I get away from them, the better it is because then I'm more to myself in doing what I do, and you gotta you gotta keep that way, I think. Um, otherwise, you'll start reacting and doing things in a reaction, and I don't know if that's really the best.
2: Yeah, I think that's. Really sound advice, actually. And, and if
1: you find someone that gives you a really bad review, you just hunt them down and take them out. <laughs> <laughs> right? You get some bad insect and put it in their house.
2: Yeah, I saw a, something going around on on the interwebs the other day of an, an author who had been posting under false names uh, one-star Goodreads yeah. reviews of their competitor. I guess what they saw as their competitor authors, and then they got found out and they got dropped and everything. And, you know, like, that's a really sad story because, like, no one's winning. The author in there is not winning. The people that they were impacted is not winning. Obviously, the publisher is not winning. And you just wonder about the psychology behind that. Like, like, is it, you know, this view of competition in the marketplace that kind of corrupts the, art, the artistic practice and the community of writers that we're trying to pull together? And it, I know a lot of people found it bothersome. I found it maybe not so bothersome so much as just, intellectually compelling like what led to that Uh, because that person when they were doing it i'm sure fully rationalized what they're why they were doing it
1: yeah i don't i I, see i can understand the passion of of you know the uh, person writing something but to do it to try and take out a competition or another writer i think that there's so much room uh, even though it's the world of overpublishing right now with Amazon, but I think that there's so much room. If you write something good, it really has no effect on the other person. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like, yeah. cause if your book is good, it's good, but it's not yeah. going to take away people from other horror writers like Chismar or any of the others. Like, Stephen King doesn't take everybody that life's horror you know what i mean
2: i i think you're right if if that were true then there there just wouldn't be that many writers out there because stephen king would have absorbed the entire audience decades ago right so the very fact that other authors exist in this genre would suggest that it is a, 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 a limitless potential to attract readers so i i tend to agree with you and i think it's a healthy way to look at it frankly if you're if you're the one that's sitting behind the keyboard for months on end trying to tap things out, if you're layering, oh, I've got to compete from a business perspective on top of that, yeah, good luck to you, you know, good luck to wanting to get out of bed every morning because, like, it's hard enough to just tap this stuff out and feel good about it and then find somebody who wants to publish it for you or publish it yourself and go through that process, much less now to, to get into this realm of, okay, now I'm going to compete like this is, you know, a business yeah. in and of itself. I think, nah, that's the wrong yeah.
1: Oh, and then you got, you know, Joe Blow down the road gives you a one-star, and then you're like, wow, and you get devastated and stuff. So it's just, it's not, I don't think it's healthy to get into any of that stuff. But, yeah. you know, I look at the overall views. If I'm on one of those places like Goodreads, and if it's overall, you know, like there's a thousand reviews and it's overall it's a four-star, geez, that's better than I put myself at.
2: Yep. I would agree. Yeah. I, I, right. I give yes. myself
1: a three. Wow. I'm doing better than I give myself. So there uh, you go.
2: Totally. Yeah. I think he, that's how I look at it too. I use it as maybe an indicator of what a, you know, a general population thought of things, but it also won't stop me if I come across something that I think is really cool from an author. It doesn't have a lot of reviews, maybe only a couple of dozen, but it, it, uh, it just really speaks to me then I'll read it. And no. you know what? I'm usually pretty pleasantly surprised. Um, no it's um but but more than once I you know picked up something that was I you know had no reviews and I was like, oh actually that was pretty darn good.
1: Well so much of its placing, right? And marketing and who's behind them and if they can get it distributed and stuff like that. I mean McDonald's is the number one burger seller and my God, that's far from the best, right? <laughs> yeah, so, that's I a mean, good point. Yeah, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Right? And but it's about the availability, the distribution. The marketing—it's all of it at, at once. Convenience, more than quality, let's say. So I just—I so we have to look at it that way, you know. If you're a small person doing something without a whole lot of support behind you, it's more about just doing a good story and then and, and getting it out there the best you can. And yep. you know, you can't you can't really compete with you know the big names. Like right now, if Stephen King puts out a book the same time you do. Of course, he's going to outsell because he's going to be in every store with posters up and everybody will be pushing him. Yeah. And, you know, and you're lucky if you're somewhere in the back. You know what I mean? Oh, totally.
2: Yeah. So, yeah. And, and I don't, like, for me personally, like, I mean, he's in another galaxy. Uh, yeah. But oh, yeah. he's my he's my favorite author, um, and, and I make no bones about that. I, I love his work. And, you know, I'm thankful that there is a Stephen King out there that, that has commanded that audience for this genre, because that has opened so many doors for everybody else who's in this space that likes to write scary stories and normalize them. And I'm not sure before, you know, with the exception of your HP Lovecrafts and your Edgar Allen Poes and that kind of thing, you know, before King and Peter Straub and, and a few others like that, this was a normalized genre to read in and it is now. And I think that paves the way. And for me, like, yeah, I want to sell books and I want to have readers, and hopefully those people like my work. But it's a long game. I'm going to be doing this anyway, like you know. So, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep getting work out there, and you know, over time, it's a marathon. I, you know, hopefully I'll gain some readers, and and you know, like any like any marathon, hopefully you post better times over time,
1: right? Yeah, and that's you never know, and some things hit years after I've done something, and six years later, all of a sudden it's really selling, and you're like, why? You know, what, what about this happened? You know, so that's, and you still got your day job, right? So yes, I do.
2: Yeah. So we're not, you know, I'm not throwing all the eggs in one basket here at this point in time that this is going to be the be all and end all. And I love my day job. Right. And like for me and like, that's another thing. Right. Like, so like in my bio in the back, like I, you'll see in my bio, it says basically what I do during the day. And then, you know, I write these stories by evening and that was purposeful because I didn't want to. Leave, I don't know, I get tired a bit when people separate themselves out or separate their lives out. I like seeing, I like seeing the full view uh, of a person, the authentic view. And, and in my case, that, that view for, you know, the most part of it is this guy's got a day job and it's very different than what he does. And he does this by night. And that's, you know, who he is. And so there's a bit of a statement in that too.
1: Oh, for sure. I, I didn't realize they still they call day day walking walking the streets a day job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a day, hey, you know. If you maybe you do it in the day, not just I. I don't know.
2: know yeah, know. well, I mean, fair enough. That's a whole other topic of conversation, right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so your characters, um, because they come along after your idea, how do you uh, how do you perceive your character? How, how does that? work for you writing a character
2: i try to um i get the i get the the place the idea um sometimes i'll lead with a character but really what i'm trying to do is is create somebody with who's got some some strengths and then an equal amount of flaws and i'm going to throw them into a situation that those are going to pop out simultaneously or in tandem with one another through that story Um, because I I think, A, that's a a good reflection of how we all are. B, I I think it's compelling, and and if done correctly, people will continue to turn the page and maybe see shades of themselves or people they they know in that character. Um, And I think it actually makes for more interesting stories and more interesting outcomes. Like if you have a person who just makes the right decision all the time and is – and is well-rationalized and even-toned, that's not very interesting. Um, Or it's hard to make it interesting, I suppose. And so I will, if I don't lead with a character or an idea, then I will create and throw the types of people into the situation I've created who maybe aren't going to be the best at handling that situation, or maybe have some key flaws that are going to lead them down a road that makes this, far more compelling. And I think that's where the drama or the thrill comes through. And that's true of life, right? Like anytime, you know, you see something in in life where people aren't getting along um, or they've made a decision, it's because, uh, you know, some emotion has led them to something or some, you know, um, emptiness inside them or issue they're struggling with uh, ego, whatever it might be. And that. Um, leads them to make a decision that makes the story that much more interesting um, and compelling. And I think people get, get interested in that, get caught up in that. So that's kind of how I, I typically approach it. So I'll, I create them from scratch that way. Um, I don't borrow from people I know, um, but I certainly do, like I think most writers, like I'm a, I'm a keenly interested in, in observer of people. I love people watching. Um, so I'll, I'll take different characteristics and things of people that, you know, some of them are minutiae, some of them are more significant and then mash them together into a human and then put them on a, put them in a situation and see what happens.
1: Yeah. Well, how, how do you create, uh, the dialogue for your characters? Can, can you hear them? Do you, do you have an inner monologue? Is that how you do it? Yeah, I can hear them.
2: Yeah, I can hear them. different. So in, in, it came from the trees. You've got an old school kind of bully in there. You've got, um a kid who's really unsure of himself and doesn't want to be there. You've got his sister who's, you know, quiet, but pretty rock solid. And then the leader of a group uh, the, of the group who's a, who's another strong female character. Um, but yeah, I could, you know, as you flesh them out you figure out their backstory a little bit, who they are, where they come from, why they're there, um, or why they don't want to be there. Um, answering just those questions um, helps out. Sometimes it's the, the old, uh, who, who are they, um, who were they, who are they, who do they want to be? And if you, if you write out those three questions and you answer them with some, you know, some general themes, um, you've got some pretty compelling information there that can help you create any type of person. Because everybody wants to be something, but that's not exactly who they are. And so you can watch them in that struggle. Or you can watch them reflect on who they were versus who they are now and where they're trying to get as a person and then then throw them into the story and from a dialogue perspective it really helps now because the things they say are reflections of of those inner issues they're struggling with or supposed to be anyway um dialogue for me is the most fun to write i love i love writing dialogue i I love listening to dialogue and, and reading it and seeing how how people actually speak um and communicate with one another especially stuff that's really snappy so yeah that's kind of that's kind of how i go at it
1: wow so you you actually hear them and stuff do they do they tell you how to do your day job and stuff like that
2: <laughs> the voices <laughs> the voices in my head uh well yeah D- doesn't doesn't your inner inner monologue tell you everything right um but are they a bunch of different characters no i mean that's that's all that's all the fiction side of this right
1: Right, right, and how, it's, how do you decide what's real and what's not, you know? That's...
2: Yeah, well, hopefully you're sober enough, you know, on your day job that that's not a hard question to, to answer. I, I think the moment that that becomes a hard question for me, we're, we're heading down another path.
1: Then your books are going to get real good.
2: Yeah, and I'll be resigning from my day job and you know, some,
1: doing something else. Well, streetwalkers don't let you get that way. <laughs> 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 oh, this is terrible! Terrible! Boy, Canadians are awful. Anyway, so listen: um, Are you doing social media? Are you doing uh, website? Um, you know, weird bars, hookup apps. Like, where do people find Joel McKay?
2: uh you will find me on social media and only on social media right now so you can find me on instagram and threads author joel mckay you can find me on twitter joel c Mackay or x as we now call it that's kind of those are the places that i hang out from time to time i can't say i'm on there all the time um but that is where you will find me these days
1: well fantastic so when does the book come out what's the date
2: January 26th. So pre orders are up now on Amazon for the ebook. Uh, print and ebook will be released January 26th, and hopefully lots of people will buy it.
1: Well, hopefully, you know. Um, and everybody, give them a really good review. Yes, please, <laughs> please do. <laughs> or just a review. No. Where where did you go from here, then? Are you working on another story? Have you always got something going? I do,
2: yeah. So I'm about 92,000 words or about 350, 360 pages into a novel. It's a horror novel, also set in B.C. I would call it industrial horror. So it's gothic and cosmic and takes place on the windswept and rainy coast of british columbia and i hope to have the first draft done here in actually i'd like to get it done in the next few weeks uh and then clean it up and you know go from there
1: wow and it, it and so gothic and vancouver and is it is it an up-to-date is it in today's date or something yeah it like? is
2: yeah it's it's contemporary it's uh not in vancouver it's in it's in the central coast um so different area remote um, and it is about an old um, town um, that is uh, a mill town that's been a ghost town for 30 years until someone comes along and tries to restart the mill and then you know all the things that go along with that until it goes sideways with you know my you know characteristic supernatural god-awful horror element that i'll inject somewhere along the way
1: right right so that's great. Any time you come to town, it goes to hell. It goes well. to
2: hell in a handbasket. Yeah, you guaranteed.
1: Wow. So there you go. And something to look out for. So, uh, of course, the book is called It Came from the Trees and Other Violent Aberrations. And, of course, it's Joel McKay. So thank you for being on the show.
2: Uh, thanks for having me again. Always great to be here.
1: Thanks, Joel.
0: This has been a production of the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our show, guests, or hosts, go to our website at houseandmysteryradio.com. You've been listening to the House of Mystery Radio Show. To find out more about our guests, hosts,